0: Alex. Home is where you feel safe.
1: For me, home is uh,
2: family, number one. Uh, my parents, let me be specific.
1: Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries. I'm Kendall Martin and I'm Allison Duval, and this is a bonus episode. We just wrapped up season 1 of the podcast and we're getting ready to drop periodic summertime episodes and the lead up to
2: General Convention. I don't know about you, Kendall, but I am so excited about General Convention this summer. It's just like a big Episcopal family reunion. And for those of you who might not know, General Convention happens every three years. It is the legislative body of the Episcopal Church, the governing body. There's a House of Bishops and a House of Deputies, and I could go on for a while with trivia that you don't need to know unless you're a deputy (laughs) or a bishop. Um, But we're excited to be there. Kendall, what are we going to have? Absolutely,
1: so we're gonna have a virtual reality experience. We're gonna have some awesome coffee from Mad Priest Coffee. I'm wearing their t-shirt right now. (laughs) Uh, We're gonna have some tasty treats from a local refugee-owned catering company. Um, a daily raffle from one of the awesome, in the name of these refugees, Adal Refugees posters. Um, yes, yeah, very cool EMM swag. So if you want to find out about that, you should come by our booth. And we're going to have volunteers from one of our local partners, Refugee Services of Texas. Um, and they
2: would love to meet you and talk with you. So definitely come by. It's going to be awesome. And listeners, Mad Priest Coffee is this awesome coffee company in Chattanooga whose mission is craft excellent coffee, educate the curious and champion the displaced. And they do a lot of awareness raising about refugees and displaced people. They hire refugees once they come into this country and they're just an amazing company that makes great coffee. So come by but also read the podcast notes from this episode to learn more about them. We'll also be dropping some podcast episodes from Austin. Maybe we'll have Mad Priest on one, so stay tuned and today's bonus episode features an interview with the reverend chris
1: bishop whose reflection we featured on episode 10 and that one was titled a home for all of us so find that one in your podcast feed
2: we hope you enjoy today's bonus episode and also stay tuned because we're going to be releasing a special episode on june 20th which is world refugee day and we're going to tell you more about that after the interview Listeners, we're so excited today to have the Reverend Chris Bishop here with us from the Diocese of Pennsylvania. Chris works with Stand with Iraqi Christians. And if you go back in your podcast feed to episode 10, you'll hear his stirring reflection on on Acts 7, 1 through 10, 16. So Chris, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me.
2: We're glad to have you. Well, I I Was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your story, Chris. You and I met um, probably two years ago now in Connecticut um, at a conference that the Episcopal Church in Connecticut was putting on. Um, I was hoping you could tell us about how you came into ordained ministry.
0: Well, I I guess the best way to frame it is, you know, I think that the often stated goal um, of looking for happiness in life is sort of an empty pursuit. So if I think about my own life, um, I would put it in terms of, I think, the search for meaning. Is really what gives life flavor and uh, and purpose, and so from the beginning of my life, and I would say in everything I've done, it's in one way or another it's been a, a really a search for meaning and to just sort of understand as much as I can about this life that we've been get, been, been given. So my dad was a priest, uh, I grew up in the Episcopal church, but uh, frankly, as a young person, the church really didn't wasn't speaking to me. And I think I needed some distance, so as a teenager, I, as many do, I left uh, the church in terms of regular attendance. I'd come home on vacations and go hear my dad preach, and that made my mom happy. But uh, I, really, was, um, I was really got involved in the arts. That's where I, I sort of found the, the most um, interest and passion that I had. So I studied theater in college. And then when I got finished with college, I went straight to New York and uh, started writing screenplays. And went to Columbia Graduate School of Film, their director and screenwriting program. Graduated, loved that work, and was really preparing myself for a life in feature films. I graduated from film school with a, I won a pretty major screenwriting award for student screenwriters called the Nichols Fellowship, and. I went out and spent some time in Hollywood. I, I wrote the screenplay for that. It's a fellowship that pays you to write for a year. And the the truth is, I, I really didn't love Hollywood. I didn't love California that much. I lived in Venice for a while. And so came back to New York, started my own production company. Uh, so um, we did a lot of commercial work and I started shooting documentary films. And our main interest was finding human stories that touched us and stirred us. So I was down in El Salvador after the war down there and we were always looking for things that that meant something, that uh, stories that that, that stirred us. And so I did that for about 10 years and loved that work. Um, Was very much caught up in the the competitive, um, exciting life of New York. But after about 10 years, I really started to get restless. I had a really, I had a great life. My friends, I was the envy of my friends. I traveled all the time and had a studio and a, a lovely apartment, but I just wasn't, I didn't have a sense of satisfaction. I never felt a sense of real contentment. So I decided to uh, start teaching. I taught up at Fairfield University. I taught screenwriting and directing and acting and television production there. But even that didn't really get me where I wanted to go. It didn't didn't give me uh, a sense of fulfillment. So I decided to just chuck everything. And I went up and had what I guess I'll call my Walden experience. I had a piece of land up on the lake in Northern Michigan. And uh, had started to build a house there and decided to move up there in the middle of winter and uh, No heat, no electricity, no running water um, But I spent three and a half years finishing my house. I learned carpentry and and uh, tile work and just loved living there and while I was there and sort of got New York washed out of my system I started reading. I uh, started reading scripture and philosophy and uh, I went back to church I was going to my local episcopal church, uh, formed a relationship with the priest, and i I started going in and leading morning prayer services. And uh, I was really at a at a transitional point in my life. I knew I didn't want to do film anymore. I was tired of production. I was tired of the frenetic pace, and I was thinking of law school or med school. And one day I happened to uh, be reading the New York Times. i got a that's the only the only my only toehold back in my old life in New York. Uh, was the Sunday Times that I would get every week up in the little corner drugstore in the, the town that I was living in, a very small town, Omina, Michigan, and I was thumbing through the newspaper and uh, I just saw an ad for those uh, courses offered for those interested in ordained ministry at General Theological Seminary in New York, and I I was taking baccalaureate programs for med school and uh, but just. Kind of a bell went off in my head, and uh, before I knew it, I was on my way back to New York to study at the, the seminary, and I um, spent a semester at General, and the, the, to be honest, the main thing I needed to find out was did I want to hang out with these church people, because I had run very far and very fast away from the church as a young person, and to my joy, uh, I, I loved it. I love the community. I love studying scripture. I love learning about the tradition of the church. It was sort of like coming home for me, I suppose. So that began a process. I ended up coming to the Diocese of Pennsylvania. I studied at Lutheran Seminary for two years. Just loved that place. It was very ecumenical, you know, uh, Presbyterians and Baptists and Episcopalians and Lutherans. And it was a crackling theological and intellectual um, environment. And just uh, loved it, became, uh, I went down and did a year at Virginia Seminary to become uh, more Anglicized, I suppose. I did my Episcopal year. And uh, came back and was ordained in the Diocese of Pennsylvania. Uh, Went and did, my first job was in Hoboken, New Jersey as the Chaplain of a Day School and Associate Priest there. Came back to Pennsylvania and was called as Rector to St. Martin's Church where I am today.
2: That was such a great story. And I, um, I was chatting with Kendall. I love hearing about your filmmaking background because when we, when we read your reflection, um, we're in the midst of making some new films for EMM and we read your reflection. We went, that's the exact story like, story framework we want to use for our films. So to know that you have a film background is, is amazing. You're an amazing storyteller.
0: Well, thanks. I and, and there's actually, I mean, lo- the long story short is, you know, ever since I got back, ever since I started in these churches and people would find out about my background, they would say, so when are you going to make a film? When are you going to make a film about us? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and, uh, my answer was always the same, is that when there's a story to tell, I'll tell it. Right. And, uh, and nothing touched me, nothing stirred me, because filmmaking is hard work, and I love doing it, but I really needed to be, uh, the word we love is uh, called, back into using this part of me, and um, and it wasn't until I was called to the mission in Iraq that I, I finally realized that uh, I did have to use that that part of my gifts again and uh, it's been wonderful it's uh, it's sort of a, the circle has a come full circle with that
1: so can you tell us how you became aware of and became involved with the Christian communities in Iraq yeah it's actually a,
0: a cool story so um, it all began at a Christmas pageant rehearsal in 2014 uh, I was at my church st. Martin's and we were having a Christmas pageant rehearsal and there was a a member of my congregation, the father and husband of a woman and her her children, uh, a family at my church. And he'd been living and working in Kurdistan for several years in construction. And he was coming home for Christmas. And so he brought his kids to the rehearsal. I had no background in Iraq. I hadn't really thought much of the Middle East. As I say in my film, I had really sort of stopped paying attention. It was too painful to keep reading about the the brutality and violence over there. So I just, I I really just struck up a conversation with this guy and said, hey, so how's life in uh, wherever, Stan, you are? I I didn't really know exactly what he was doing. He said, well, I live in Kurdistan in northern Iraq, and my life is great, but do you know what's happening with the Christians over there? And I I had to admit that I, I really did not. And he started telling me about the 120,000 Christian refugees, people from literally some of the oldest Christian communities in the world, the only Christians who still speak and worship in Aramaic, the language of Jesus, that because of ISIS, um, they had been driven from their homes. They had been, uh, they'd had to leave at a moment's notice with everything they had, with everything that, leaving everything they had ever had, and had run literally for their lives across the Nineveh Plains for safety behind the Peshmerga lines in Kurdistan. And we're living in desperate conditions as refugees in uh, Erbil, the capital of Kurdistan and some areas around that. And I have to say it was it was a, a profound moment for me because what came into my mind as he was telling me this was not, hey, somebody should do something about that. It was very clearly you, Chris, have to do something about that. So literally standing there with this this man, Mark, I said to myself and I, I expressed to him, you know what, I need to go there. My original idea was to take my camera and, and a couple hundred dollars for my wife and I and just go meet these folks and find out about them and their lives and find out what I could do to help. I didn't think anything beyond that. Um, it was just a, it was a real um, call of the spirit. So the following Sunday, I preached about it. I started talking to my congregation about this, this sense I had that this was something I really, really had to do. And to my, my great joy, my congregation said, hey, we want to go with you. We want to be a part of this thing. So we uh, formed, just as a small mission in St. Martin's Church in Radnor, um, stand with Iraqi Christians. And we raised about $15,000. And I, through um, Trudy Rubin, who is a really very well-known, accomplished um, journalist, at the Philadelphia Inquirer, I think she was second or third in line for the Pulitzer Prize this year for her writing about Kurdistan and, and northern Iraq. Uh, she, I made contact with a guy named Father Douglas Bozzi, a Chaldean priest who had turned his shrine, Maralia, in Erbil into a refugee center. So I made contact with him and uh, determined to go over there. We had raised, as I said, this money, and we wanted to not just take the money, but to form a relationship between our churches and to get to know these folks, uh, because it was clear that they what they really needed was some friendship and some love. And this is the filmmaking part, so I'm getting ready to go and getting prepared to take this mission trip and a member of my congregation says, well, are you going to make a film about it? And I thought, Oh no, yeah, I guess I'm going to have to do that because it's a whole other layer. And so it had been a long time since I made a film. So I had to, you know, get myself reacquainted with all the new technology. Cause last time I'd made a film, I had a big high eight camera on my shoulder. And of course now it's all digital. So the cameras are smaller and it's all digital technology and chips instead of tape. And an interesting little piece of the story is that, um, My church is right down the street from Eastern College. And I had gotten friendly with some of the students who would come to worship with us. And one of them said, hey, I've got a friend who's in film and you should meet him. He wants to find out more about you. So uh, one Sunday, uh, my friend Jeremy from Eastern brought another student named Andrew Belinda Bagabo from Rwanda. And I met him. This was long before I ever was going to go to Iraq. And my thinking was, oh, you know, good luck with that film thing, Andrew. Uh, nice to meet you. So when I realized uh, that I needed to make this film in Iraq, I called Andrew and said, Hey, I don't know if you remember me, I'm the priest at St. Martin's, but I I used to do film, but it's been a while, but I'm going to go make a film in Iraq and I would love somebody to really get me up to speed on the technology. And he said, sure. So he helped me out. We found a camera. I got used to the technology. He got me technically outfitted to shoot the film. And he let me know that he's an editor. And I said, great, because that's been a long time and I, I'm gonna need someone to edit this thing. I said, I have no idea what I'm gonna come back with. I have no plan. I'm just gonna go over and start shooting. So um, he said, great, well, call me when you get back. So I, I went to Iraq, um, met Father Douglas Bosi, spent time in this Marlia refugee center. It was wonderful. We, we bought tablet computers for all the teachers. Uh, We distributed food to some folks just off of the Nineveh Plains, uh, a community who were just, you know, desperate and hungry. And uh, it was a life-changing experience for me. I've never met people whose faith was so strong. These are people who had lost everything, had run for their lives. I mean, imagine that everything you have, your home, all the money you had ever saved, all all of the education that you had acquired, um, everything in your life that you cared about and loved, um, you were, in some cases, given an hour to leave. So you left with with what was on your back. Uh, when I was in Iraq with these folks, you know, and asking them, so what what is your faith like now? They would say things like, uh, "When we had lost everything and thought that our lives were over, God was the only one who never abandoned us." And so today, our faith is what sustains us and keeps us alive. And so it fed it fed my spirit as a priest in ways I could not have imagined. So I came back, you know, with about twenty hours of footage, having no idea if any of it was any good. I had been to a I'd been to a, a monastery over there right, on the, right near the front lines of ISIS and interviewed the, the priest there. And uh, I, had ho- I hoped that I had a story to tell. I came back. So I come back, I call Andrew and I say, Andrew, hey, you know, I've got this footage. Would you like to look, take a look at it and maybe help me out? He said, sure. So we got together for lunch and I I said, look, um, the truth is I don't have any money. I've got very little resources to pay you. And I know this is sort of what you want to do for a living and you need to to live as well. I said, why would you do this? Why would you cut this film? And he said, well, you have to understand that my father is a, a bishop in the Anglican Church of Rwanda. And in 1994, the world knew what was going to happen in Rwanda and did nothing. And there was a, a massacre of a million people who died. And in 1998, Bill Clinton came to Rwanda and said, "We're sorry. Wish we'd done more." And uh, Andrew said, "You know, this is Iraq today, and we have to do something uh, because I want to. I don't want to be part of the people who are saying, years from now, yeah, we knew what was happening and we didn't do anything to help." And so Andrew started working with me and cut this film together. And the film is really what took Stand with the Rocky Christians to a different level. If I just come back with photographs and stories and I blogged and people were very moved by it, That would have been one thing, but the film really started, it gave people in the US a real chance to see the faces and hear the voices of these Christians who are desperately struggling and feel really forgotten by the West. When I got back, you know, I, again, this, this all, God did this because it wasn't me because I really had no idea what I was doing. And to a certain extent still don't. As Americans, we have very little understanding of Iraq and the the issues and the struggles, the centuries long issues and struggles facing this whole culture. But um, I started showing the film around the diocese, and uh, we really started getting more attention and more resources. And finally, my church said to me, Chris, this is a really wonderful mission, but it's kind of growing beyond our our church. And financially and for other reasons, we should probably sort of get a little bit more deeply um, organized. So we formed a nonprofit. So Stand With The Rocky Christians became a 501c3 under the umbrella of the Episcopal Church. Really through the film, but then through, I've got a wonderful, I've got a great board of directors and a great executive uh, executive director, Deb Parker. Um, we have really formed this into an international organization that's really doing some great work over there.
2: Well, it's just phenomenal. And both Kendall and I kind of nodded when you mentioned that Andrew is from Rwanda. What we find in Episcopal Migration Ministries is that so many individuals who have family stories of forced displacement or were themselves forcibly displaced, they have such a sense of mission and purpose to making sure that no other person is forgotten and that the voices that are often unheard are lifted up. So that's just amazing to hear about Andrew's collaboration with you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the mission of Stand With Iraqi Christians, both now and what you hope for in the future?
0: Well, that's a great question. So early on, we we understood our mission to be to uh, to, to support the right of Iraqi Christians and their communities to survive and thrive. And so initially, our, our, our understanding of what this mission went, meant was, to work with the refugees, the Christians who had been displaced from northern Iraq because Daesh, as ISIS is known over there, was still in control of northern Iraq. And there was no sense that this was going to, to end. So, our understanding was we were going to work with the, the folks dealing with the, the refugee crisis in Erbil. So, we worked with a wonderful educational group, youth group uh, called the 2D Institute, who's doing educational programs in the camps. Uh, we worked with, uh, we've got a, another great partner, brilliant guy, Sanan, who was working with other groups and other project pr- programs with people there. And uh, that was our focus. And so that was our fundraising. That was, we did a lot of um, Skyping with uh, Maralia and other people over there. But then this past year, of course, uh, because of the, the offensive in northern Iraq, militarily at least, ISIS has been driven out. And in fact, it was interesting. I was in Erbil on a mission trip and uh, the hotel I was staying in suddenly was filling up with these journalists. And uh, I was I only had a couple of days left on my mission and I got into an elevator with all these journalists and I said to one of them, what are you all doing here? And they said, well, don't you know that the... Uh, the, the military offensive is starting in Mosul next week. And so I said, I did not know that. So me and I got my uh, my travel plans together and I needed to get out of there because I didn't know once they closed down the airport, I might have not been able to leave. So I was caught right in this sort of vortex of of that offensive. So anyway, long story short, you know, the military offensive was successful. ISIS was driven out. And so suddenly you have thousands of Christians who want to go home? And so, um, Karakash, also known as Baghdadi, is a is one of the largest Christian. It ci- was one of the largest Christian cities in the Middle East, and it's it's about sixty kilometers south of Mosul. And so, that was really where Christians were trying to go home to. And you have to understand, if you've ever seen World War II footage of Dresden after the w- World War II. It, the place had been reduced to rubble. And so we immediately understood that our our mission needed to be refocused to helping these folks who wanted to go home. And so that's what we're doing now. So we've really, um, we're digging wells because the, the main issue is folks need water and they need electricity, and they need to start rebuilding their businesses and their lives. So that's kind of what we've been focusing on on the Nineveh Plains. Another crucial piece of it is that um, in Baghdad, there's the only Anglican church in Iraq, uh, St. Georges. And um, Father Father Fai's George Georges, who is just a wonderful guy and a wonderful priest, he would come up to Rabiel whenever I was there on mission. And he and I would talk and we became friends. And as time went on and we began to realize that our mission had changed, we first came to understand that the Christians in Baghdad also were h- highly stressed. A lot of them had left, had emigrated. Others had, some of them had run to Erbil. But St. George's was doing some of the most important ecumenical and interfaith work in Baghdad. And so we immediately decided, well, we also have to focus on what Father Fize is doing in Baghdad. One of the biggest issues regarding doing mission work and doing sort of development work in Iraq is that it's really hard to move money over. There. Early in my in our mission, I would just carry money with me uh, to distribute for our projects. But when we became a nonprofit, all that needed to change, and so we had to form a banking relationship. And so Father Faz and St. George's, thanks be to God, they have become our basically our financial conduit, our, our partners in Iraq. And so we have a bank here in the States that is working with St. George's to send money so that we can fund our projects. And so um, probably one of the most exciting things we're doing is that St. George's has a kindergarten, uh, School of the Redeemer, 150 children in Baghdad of all backgrounds, uh, Muslim, Christian, Yazidi, all ethnic and religious backgrounds are coming to this school and it is so successful that the parents began saying to Father Fies we don't want to send our kids anywhere else. We would like this to be their school. Could you please expand your kindergarten to some of the upper grades? And so uh, Father Fies said yes. And so they raised about $300,000 and began building a primary school. And uh, so Stand With Iraqi Christians wanted to be a part of this. So we said that, hey, we're gonna buy your computers, we're gonna help buy furniture, we're gonna help outfit your school. About six weeks ago now, I was on the phone with Father Fies and he said, I said, hey, how's the school coming? Uh, We want to know so that we, because we've okayed this money, and we want to help you guys. He said, well, construction has stopped. And I said, why? And he said, well, um, the money coming from the Anglican Communion has been held up uh, in the UAE, one of the largest donors to the Diocese of Cyprus in the Gulf, which I should mention is one of our partners as well over there. I became you know, friends with uh, Bishop Michael Lewis, the Bishop of the Anglican Diocese of Cyprus in the Gulf, and his right-hand person, uh, Archdeacon Bill Schwartz. And um, he said, Father, if I said that that we we cannot continue on the school until we get money. And I said, well, how much do you need? He said, well, we need $50,000 to finish the first floor so we can open for the first, second, and third grade in the fall. I said, okay, we're gonna find that money for you. So we started uh, going to people and speaking and a couple of angels showed up. And so we have been able to raise $45,000. Uh, we spent the first 20,000 over to Father Faiz. And so the construction on the school is now underway again, thanks to the uh, the grace of God and the work of the wonderful people with Stand With Iraqi Christians and at St. George's. So that's something we're, we're really, really proud of. And we're committed to raising more money to get that school open for those kids. Uh, in September.
1: That's a wonderful project. Well, and, and how are you all currently working to raise awareness here in the U.S.? And on top of that, what obstacles do you all face in trying to do that?
0: Well, you know, that, that is the million-dollar question. I would say, uh, just sort of to give you a picture of our organization, we, we have a website, standwithirakichristians.org, that's probably the best place to understand our mission and it has information on our mission. It has information on everything we're doing. It has our vision. It has our partnerships. It has um, our relationships to the media. I continue to screen our film, which is called Where Is Our Place, is, um, is free on the website. A good example of awareness raising and how it works with our group is that I was up in Connecticut um, screening my film last year at my father's old church, Christ Church Greenwich. And um, it was great to see old friends, et cetera. But just this past, about three weeks ago, um, Stand with the Rocky Christians received a check for $25,000 from a foundation in Connecticut who had seen our film. They were on our mailing list. They were reading our newsletter. They they found out about the need at St. George's. And so they sent us this donation and it's made all the difference. Mm. So I, you know, I'm talking to you. um, I've been... There've been articles written in newspapers about us. We are reaching out in any way that we can. We're gonna be at General Convention this year uh, with our film and some other resources, and we're contacting bishops throughout the Episcopal Church in the US. I think we're at the point where we're really looking to expand the message. I should say that last December, Bishop Michael uh, Lewis from Cyprus and Archdeacon Bill were in New York. Um, I was up at 815, they know what we're doing. And so we are going to hopefully be up there with them this spring to really see what the Episcopal Church is willing to do and able to do in, in getting this message out. Um, you may have seen... Bishop Curry, our presiding bishop, his Easter message. And part of that message was he had gone to Jordan and was speaking with a Iraqi Christians. And so we're really, I, I was so happy to see that this was something that had stirred his heart. So we're really hoping to, to get the attention of the Episcopal Church and to make this part of what we do as, as a church body, as the body of Christ. The Episcopal Church has focused a lot and for good reason on Central and South America and Africa, but it is my fondest wish that uh, the Episcopal church also take a real interest in standing with the Iraqi Christians. Sinan, who's one of our partners, uh, who does a lot of work on the Nineveh Plains with us and other groups up there, they did a survey of the Christians in Iraq uh, that are trying to go home. And the question they posed was, what do you all see as the future of the church and of your lives here in Iraq? And the answer was pretty consistent. We love our country. We love our church. We would love to rebuild our communities. But without help, we are not gonna be successful doing that. We must have the help of the Western church and the Western world. Because the truth is Iraq is a majority Muslim country, there's an entire country to rebuild, and the government there is not going to be stepping up to give them the assistance that they need. So if we really do as Christians in the West have an interest, and I think we should for a bunch of different reasons, uh, to help preserve and stand with these folks who, would love to rebuild their lives and, and maintain their church, um, they're gonna need our help. So we, we really are um, interested in really working with the Episcopal Church in a broader sense. I should also mention that Reverend Bob Edmonds, who is the, office, the Middle East officer for the Episcopal Partnership, um, partnership Initiatives, he's a good friend, he's, he's in my film. Um, he's also been tremend- a tremendous help in sort of getting the word out and, and hopefully getting the attention of our church and, and being able to really do some good over there.
2: Well, we're so glad to be able to be a part of your efforts in getting the word out. So listeners, um, you can visit StandWithIraqiChristians.org. Um, to learn more about this amazing organization. And please do view their film, Where Is Our Place? Um, Father Chris, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: Well, listen, I, I just want to thank uh, folks for listening. I can't say enough that we, as as Western Christians, we tend to think that when we do mission work and when we reach out to folks in these more troubled parts of the world, that we're, we're kind of doing it for their benefit and to, quote unquote, help them. Um, I have to say that I have... Really sincerely, I have received more from the folks that we have worked with in Iraq in terms of uh, a deeper understanding of my faith and as our call as Christians to uphold the body of Christ everywhere and for all people. And um, I've been amazed at the, the degree to which this mission has also touched my parish and that it has has given them more again than than the folks over there I think have ever received from us so I just want to encourage people to know that this is a this is an act of love and that uh, we we have a real opportunity to build a new kind of relationship with those that we we go to uh, to serve and be served by and so I really welcome anyone's interest and uh, participation any way they feel moved so thank you
2: Thank you so much, Father Chris. We hope that everybody has a Christmas pageant rehearsal moment like (laughs) you did. (laughs) We're the Holy Spirit. You have to do something about this. So thank you so much for being with us.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. Anytime.
1: Thank you.
2: I just loved our conversation with Chris and I think the work that he's doing is so inspiring.
1: Oh, me too.
2: And it inspires me to look forward to our World Refugee Day episode. (laughs) That was a segue. I like that. Listeners, our World Refugee Day episode will be the audio of a webinar that we're hosting on Monday, June 18th at 4 p.m. Eastern.
1: And it's called Our 1939 Moment, Continuing the Legacy of Welcome. And this webinar is going to be a conversation about both the present, but also the history of the Episcopal Church's legacy of Refugee Welcome. And we're going to offer information and inspiration and some specific ways that both individuals and congregations can claim this legacy and this work as their own.
2: And if you're not the webinar type, don't worry, because we're going to repackage the audio for you and release it on June 20th. So just stay subscribed and it will arrive in your feed.
1: Until then, listeners, learn more on our website, EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter,
2: and Instagram, where we are EMM Refugees. Until next time, peace be with you and all those you consider home.